I was telling Josh um, a few moments ago that it is, it's going to be weird to teach, um, or Danny actually, Danny, it's going to be weird to teach in English all the way through. I won't have that moment to like look down at my notes and get the next sentence exactly right. Um, Wait, how did you break a habit? <laughs> well, I, but see, like I was down there for almost a month teaching in just a different format. And I, w I sat down, I was like, I don't know how I used to write hour long lessons. I wrote for like 20 minutes, so it'd be 40 minutes. And then I quickly remembered how I write hour long lessons. <laughs> uh, so um, I want to start tonight um, just a little bit differently. Um, give a little statement here because uh, I, I hope that it's a statement that can make tonight a little bit more digestible and a little bit less offensive. Um, as I was, as a matter of fact, I was sort of thinking, struggling to get back into the flow of writing for this and getting motivated to write this. Um, and then I realized that we were coming up to a controversial topic, which in some odd way motivates me um, to write. But then I also realized the flip side of that and the sort of tone and arrogance that can come with being excited about controversial topics. So I wanted to start out with a little bit of a different uh, tone to it um, so that it doesn't necessarily come off so offensive or arrogant um, in, in sort of a, a I think I'm better than you type of attitude. So I'm going to start with a sentence that hopefully doesn't make any sense to start, and then we can unpack it just a little bit as we go through. Often, bad preachers are bad because they are hypocrites, and often, good preachers are good because they are hypocrites. Okay? That perfect sense to me. One person thought it was funny. No, literally, I read it last night, and I started laughing out loud. I'm like... <laughs> no, but, I, and the reason I say that is... All the time, you see bad preachers are bad because they teach one thing and live a completely different way, right? That is what does more harm to the church than almost any other thing. If you get to see the big scandals that come across is the mega pastors defending the faith, horrible life, right? That's some of the worst stuff that Christianity has to offer. But also, as I thought about it, the best preachers are also hypocrites, but for an entirely different reason. Really good preachers are, are holding the, the infinitely high bar of Scripture for their congregation to live by, and they call them to live by it with joy. So a good preacher isn't one that's going to water it down so that it's easier for everyone to live by, but a good preacher is going to preach the Word of God just like it is. And it turns out that good preachers, just like everyone else, are trying their very best to follow Scripture, and they fall short too. And it's not a good idea to hold pastors to a different standard. They are just, I mean, in some sense it is, you have the elder standards, but in some sense they are also just another part of the body. They're not super saints. They are people who are more mature, sure, they should be, but they're not different categorically way to, way to pastoral. So I wanna say this, um, tonight we're gonna to be covering children and parents. And I, I will be providing what I consider to be some pretty significant critiques, some pretty significant challenges to you on what I perceive to be a general lack of obedience and a lack of honor uh, to your parents, as well as saying and challenging you on some of the ways that I see parents of people that I know sinning as well. But guess what? Many of you have seen me for years interact with my parents, my grandparents. You have seen me day to day and you've also seen my parents interact with me you've also you're also well aware of the fact that i'm not a parent right i so me teaching on parenting seems a little sus right but like i was saying we 
a good a good teacher teaches whatever comes up in the text. You do whatever you can to eliminate the bias. And so I want to hold you guys to the highest standard that scripture would have. But in turn, this can't become a session of this is this is what Sam does, this is what Sam doesn't do. Um, because honestly, when I when I prepared this sermon, I felt some pangs of conviction too. I recognize that I fail, and like you, I'm trying. I'm trying to obey God better in this area, but I'm not perfect either, and I'm trying, right? That's all I, that's all I can do, um, and I hope that I have some sense of maturity in it to be able to be qualified to teach, but at the end of the day, if you see faults in me and how I live my life in this area, you know why that probably is? Probably because it's true, okay? And so I just wanted to put that out there that I'm going to challenge you guys and my job is to challenge you guys. But as I write this, the mirror is on myself as well, and yet I still need to hold, hold the bar of Scripture just as high. So I love that this is the tone because I wanted, as I thought about how can we restart Koinonia getting back into our old groove, and I absolutely love starting with that tone because it doesn't matter where you're at, we can't bring the bar of Scripture down to you. We have to live up to what Scripture teaches, okay? Enough said. Got that. Very good. So that was my long way of getting into it. But once you actually get into this text, Colossians chapter 3, um, if you even remember what book we're in at this point, you know, that'll be, I'll, I'll be touched if you remember what book we're in. What, what chapter are we in? That'd be even more impressive. But chapter 3, um, verse 20. Paul doesn't take any time really winding up to this point or, you know, building up to it. He's just, we're here. And we're in sort of a social institutions passage by way of review. So we have wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. Those are the three common institutions within the ancient home. And so tonight we're working on the institution of parent and child. Uh, so let's have our first verse read back. It's exciting to have passages read for real. Once again, Colossians 3:20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, I, it really, it truly does not get much simpler than that. I mean, Paul, I mean, it is super simple, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. But I do want to break it down just a little bit further because I don't know why else I'd be here except to break it down. No, um, no. the real reason is that I, I hear so many justifications. Like, it's like we read this passage and then we're like, so how can I justify my behavior around this passage? There is more effort put into getting around the submission passage and around the obedience passage and around why the slavery passage should even be in the New Testament than there are any other verses in the New Testament, in my opinion, at least in the practical application sections. And so I wanted to take a moment to work on these words individually to sort of shoot down some preliminary justifications that I hear all the time. So let's start with that word children. Commentators generally agree that the word for children has no age limitations inherent in it. The word for children there has no age limitations. Okay, I'm going to sort of set up a little tension here. So the word has no age limitations, but over in Ephesians, we have a parallel text. We've said this numerous times. Colossians and Ephesians are sort of trickling down together. Let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 4. And what I want you to catch here is that 
it indicates that Paul has younger children in mind because Paul makes a comment to the fathers about raising them up in the admonition of the Lord, teaching them to go in that way. So you see a younger emphasis over in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you have that, you have that younger side in Ephesians, but other commentators noted this, and I think this is very good from a um, sort of an ecclesiological perspective, is that Paul's making the assumption, and I think it's a valid one, that these children are going to be old enough to sit within the congregation and understand the letter that is being read to the congregation as a whole. So this is, this is something that can't be super limiting in age, and I'll give some examples from the Old Testament um, to clarify this, but... The, what, what commentators do is they sort of combine these two, and I think it is the best interpretation to come away with out of this passage is, and I, I will agree with and endorse it, is that there's a sense in which you have the younger side in Ephesians, and yet the fact that this word can refer to any age, and so we should steer right down the middle and say that if you're still living in your parents' home, this commandment applies to you, which sounds like just a cute way to <laughs> compromise, but as I thought about it more, there is a good textual reason in my mind for that, for that compromise, if you will. What is Paul's point in, in this passage? What is he doing here? What are, what are all three of these doing? I'll throw that out there. What institutions is he talking about? That's okay. That's perfectly fine. Obeying authority. Yes. Where? particularly in your home. Exactly. So his point here is that, okay, wives and husbands are in the home. Children or parents are in the home. Um, slaves and masters are in the home. And MacArthur's title for his sermon on this, I thought was a really nice way of putting it, a new man. We've been talking about what makes a new man. A new man makes a new home. So this is showing, okay, chapter three, what is a new man? What are all the characteristics? Anger, wrath, malice, you're putting these off. Talks about you as an individual. And then he moves into the section about your home. And then you'll see a section in chapter four where he moves to talking about those outside the faith. So really, I think what Paul is doing here is emphasizing the relationships within the home. And so that is why I think it's a good compromise to say, yes, there are no age limitations, and yes, the emphasis is, is on raising good children, but Paul's, Paul's real motive and driving force here is the relationships within the home. There are authority and submission relationships throughout every institution and dynamic within the home. I'm on a different page now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push your buttons a little bit more um, before, before I let you, let you up on this one. Many of you proclaim from the rooftops your support and your countercultural push on husband and wife submission relationships. You, you guys have really done a great job um, pushing back against the feminist tide, I think. And I, I really appreciate that. I really respect that. But if you like that, then you should love this even more. Because Paul appears to choose words which are even stronger, even stronger than his language towards submission. What does he say towards slaves and masters, children and parents that he doesn't say to wives and husbands? Let's start there. Anyone notice anything? Obey. Obey. Right. The word, the word for submission and... Yes, please. All. What do you mean? It says all things. 
Yes, I think that is an interesting inclusion. There seems to be both in his word choice and in some of the phrases that he uses, there seems to be more of this idea that husband and wives are spiritual equals who are going to have to compromise. Yes, there's leadership and submission, but okay, you need to work things out and decide things together and have a unified direction. The word obey implies much more of somebody who's giving commands and somebody who is and receiving those commands to do. This is something, the fall, this, this coming thing is something that I think is a little bit buried in English translation, and I, I would definitely not have picked it up. But O'Brien makes a really interesting note here by saying that the, for the word submission, that verb is in the middle voice in the Greek, which indicates voluntary submission, voluntary submission. But what about the word for obey in terms of children and parents and slaves and masters? What is the tense or the... Um, well, that wouldn't be a tense. Would it be um, declension? Would that be the word? But anyway, um, it is in the active imperative voice, that verb, which indicates, and to quote O'Brien, denoting absolute obedience. So Paul is making sort of a more, how do you say, passive statement when he says submit. But in terms of the grammar structure that he's using for slaves and masters and than children and parents, it's much more like type of emphasis. It's much harsher and stronger in terms of its grammatical emphasis. And, and by the way, right after it, it says, so you have children obey your parents um, in everything. Now, everything. Anyone have any idea what that Greek word means? Um, any Greek students here? No? no? It means everything. I looked it up. Um, so it actually means everything, right? There, it means in all things, which is um, very similar to our English word for everything. Uh, so it, it, really, it really is pretty all-inclusive as I went through it. Um, but I, I want to be very clear about that, because that there is, there is a time to disobey, right? And that is when, when they're asked, any authority asks you to do something which disobeys the commandments of God. You have to obey God over men. But as I'm really pondering that, I don't think that that is the majority of issues that we're running into on a daily basis in our life. Oh, you know, wow, I must, you know, disobey tyranny for obedience to God in, in our homes. You know, I, that's not the majority. It's mostly, I don't really like that. It's kind of not my favorite, not the way I would do it. So I'm not going to do it. And so I don't really think that the, I want to be very clear about that. Yes, if your parents are asking you to do something that is sinful and disobedient to the Lord, yes, you disobey. But in everything beyond that really means everything. Um, and uh, I, other commentators made a great note in saying that Paul is not expecting that the new man who is leading this home is going to be asking his family to do things which are against the will of God, which is why you don't see that caveat here. But in general, yes, the scriptural principle is always disobey if it's causing you to disobey God's law. But that is, that is not the majority of issues that we, that we see in our homes. Now, why are we supposed to do this? One very simple reason to start with in this passage. Anyone want to throw it out there? It's not that complicated. The house is a model of the church. Yes, what is in the passage, though? Particular marriage, but yes. Because it's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. It's a very, I mean... It makes God happy. Um, 
And why does it make God happy? That's just an interesting question to ponder. Um, I've made a little bit of progress through Jordan Peterson. And if you've made any progress through Jordan Peterson stuff, you know that there are hierarchical relationships built into the core of every human relationship ever in society. From the very start, God has had these authority and submission things all throughout society. And the reason they go wrong is because people are abusive and bad and, and hurtful. But when they're done properly, having good leadership means that you have good direction and people have places to go and they have purpose in society. And so, yes, it pleases the Lord to see authority and submission that he designed to be working and for the leadership to be good and for people to be following. Um, but not only is the Lord pleased with this type of behavior, but over in Ephesians, Paul makes the comment that this is the first commandment with a promise. The Lord provided a promise about the days being long in the land. And you can take two interpretations with that. One, either personal life, your living will be long, or you can take it in a national sense that Israel will be able to remain in the promised land for long days when the children are obedient. Which, by the way, Ezekiel makes a very interesting note. What is one of the reasons for the Babylonian captivity site in Ezekiel, I want to say, chapter 37? Anyone know? They were disobedient to their parents. That's one of the reasons that God sent them into captivity. Um, but beyond the promises in the Old Testament, um, capital punishment was dealt out to rebellion. Um, and if you were to strike your parent which I, I know people who have done. I mean, that is, that is a thing that happens. If you were to strike your parent to be blatantly rebellious, this is something that you could be stoned for. In the passage about rebellion, and this is the note I promised you earlier, it says that if your son is a glutton or a drunkard and refuses to repent, you know, and is in this rebellious lifestyle, they can be brought and stoned. Which as I was reading that, that indicates to me John Piper, whoever it is, says, you know, I was saved from a life of drugs and crime when I was five. You know, because he's saying I would have gone on to live a life of drugs and crime. But it means that we're probably not talking about five-year-olds here because we don't have glutton, drunken five-year-olds. This is probably a little bit older of people if we're dealing with gluttons and drunks that are being stoned. <laughs> so I, I, have, I have the old... The Old Testament view on this, which I think Paul is obviously bringing into his New Testament view, is that this is not just, you know, oh, we need to encourage our eight-year-old, you know, son to be obedient, okay? I think he's really saying that if, if you are in the home, there is an authority structure that you should live under. I want to make one brief comment on that, because a lot of times with the Old Testament laws, you'll hear things that sound really harsh. Yes. Uh, and what you have to know is it is harsh, but it's less harsh than all the laws in the surrounding land. So back then, it was culturally acceptable if you were doing something that was displeasing to the head of the household, like father, generally speaking, or maybe your grandfather. Um, they would have the right to do that sort of thing, to just take you out and kill you. But with the, the Mosaic Law, there's an actual kind of a buffer set in place. Okay, you right. actually have to identify this and bring this before everybody. You can't just do this on your own without warrant. Absolutely. So. But let me be very clear then, God's word and command for you today is to go home and obey your parents if you're still living at home. It's very simple. Um, and as one who's commissioned to challenge you with God's word tonight, I find that what many of you do with your parents is disconcerting and concerning to me. Um, sure, do we all sin by disobeying our parents? 
Have we done that throughout our entire lives? Yes, of course we have. And that's not really what bothers me, right? We talk about direction, not perfection. What bothers me um, is that while, again, many of you have done a great job rejecting the feminist push regarding marriage and that institution in the home, you have accepted society's lies regarding being under your parents. Um, what concerns me here is not that you sin occasionally, of course that is heartbreaking, but what concerns me is that I hear people in this group celebrating disobeying their parents. But what do we call it? We don't call it disobeying our parents, we call it what? What are some common terms that you would throw out? I have one that comes to mind. Independence. Independence, that's great. Setting boundaries. Setting boundaries. <laughs> Setting boundaries, okay? And I, I don't want to go all in on that phrase and just like absolutely hate on it because some people define it really well and have good intentions when they use the word boundaries and some just use it as a cheat word for disobedience. So I'm, I'm really not going to try to hammer on that term. I'm going to hammer on the idea though and say this, like, you know, again, we, we all like, we say, I'm an adult now. I can make all the decisions, you know, I'm an adult and I turn 21, you know, whatever. Friends, let me remind you that the word or the concept really um, of boundaries is not a central ethic whatsoever at all or found at all in scripture. Uh, one guy that I listen to hates on the idea of boundaries because he finds it opposite to the ethic of love. Um, love says in his definitions, how can I serve you? Whereas boundaries, depending on how you define and use the term, can be saying, how can I serve myself? Now, there is a societal push to celebrate you disobeying your parents because of supposedly how brave you are for finally standing up for yourself and for your thoughts. And, you know, don't let people treat you like that. You know, that's what society is pushing. That's the memo. But in reference to slaves, same, same concept here, same words over in Peter. He says, you know, don't just be obedient to the ones that are good and gentle, but to the ones that are unjust. And I find that many of you are flagrantly disregarding your parents' commands, and I think that's deeply concerning. Not, I don't find that many of them are like, oh, you know, you know, uh, go out there and have have sex with your girlfriend. That's what I'm commanding you to do. Disobey God. You know, like that's not what it's not what these parents are generally asking of you. Does Scripture ask you to find what they're telling you to do reasonable? No, it doesn't. It doesn't ask for your input. It doesn't ask for your thoughts on the matter. It asks you to obey in everything within the home. Now, I will put that caveat with it once again. That I, The same caveat I will put with all issues of civil disobedience. If obedience to parents interferes with loving God, then who are you to obey? God. If it interferes with loving people, then who are you to obey? God. What is the greatest, you know, what's the summary of the law? Love God, love everyone else, boom. Okay, and if what people are asking you to do, whether it's government or husbands and wives or masters, not that we really have employers, that would be a fine equivalent, or, or parents, if they're asking you to do something that goes against loving God or loving other people, then that is your area to obey. And I would argue that there are even times of civil disobedience, catch this, this is really important here, if I hear people questioning me after this and miss this point, I'm just going to not answer. But 
you know, if there are times for civil disobedience from a posture of humility that can be done out of love for your parents, in my, in my estimation. I'm going to refrain from giving personal examples here, but sometimes what your parents ask you to do may be harmful for them in the long term, okay? So if you can't obey in good conscience because you say, I know what you're asking me to do, but I, I'm really afraid that this will actually hurt you in the long term, then I think that there are reasonable, understandable um, ideas for disobeying in those instances. Um, but it's always centered on love for others, not boundaries of self. So you may be thinking that this sort of reason for disobedience is so general and can be so warped um, to whatever you need it to mean or want it to mean at the moment. Can that be? If I say, only if it's loving can you disobey. How warpable is that? Pretty warpable, right? I mean, the flexibility of that is nearly infinite, depending on your mood, quite frankly. Um, but I, I don't want to go any further past that, actually. Because as soon as you do, you start providing case laws for, in this situation, you can disobey if this happens. And that's the worst possible way to go about it. Because what I want you to do instead is, is saying, instead of being legalistic about, legalistic about it, is here's how I want to challenge you. Who are you disobeying for? Are you disobeying because you love God, love others, or even because you love your parents? Or really, are you disobeying because you have a selfish heart that wants to be rid of personal annoyances? Okay? And I can't nitpick you into being perfectly loving and obedient in all situations. You have to be able to be led by the Spirit to such a degree that you divorce yourself from the emotions of the current situation, assess what is loving to God, what is loving to neighbor, and then get rid of your selfish motives and ask, what's the loving thing to do here? And I will say in Christian circles, even with the wackiest of parents, and I'm not going to name names. Some of you have wacky parents. That's, that's all there is to it. You probably think so. I probably think so. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> There's weird people out there, and when they get together, they have kids. And, you know, and then they're your parents, right? And they're not the most logically driven people, probably, right? Most people aren't logically driven. Therefore, most parents aren't logically driven. My point in saying that is it's not about how wacky or how this, that, or the other. It's about is it loving to obey or not, okay? And so, um, yes, there are times. Yes, you have a lot of liberty in saying the law of love. But I'm going to say exactly to you what Scripture says. Don't use your liberty as a cover-up for your fleshly desires. If you want to disobey... It better be the loving thing to do, and don't you dare use the excuse of, quote-unquote, love as a cover-up for selfishly wanting to disobey. Your immediate instinct and emotional posture should be one that is quick to obey, with the rare exception being that of disobedience. Um, I posted a supplemental resource from J.D. Greer, nine minutes, good listen if you want some sort of toxic parent cases. Um, and he brings up a passage that I didn't choose to include here about Jesus talking about hating your father and mother and disobeying your father and mother in coming to be a follower of Christ. Christ recognizes that there are times that that's going to happen. Obeying God does not always mean obeying parents. 
But J.D. Greer makes a great point in saying that, especially when you're young, your parents are to function as God to you, right? They're teaching you authority to God and submission, God's authority and your submission to him. And when you move out and you have your own family, then you obey God directly and you become God for somebody else. And it's this wonderful pattern, hopefully, of teaching how to obey. But if your parents step out of line of what God would ask them to do, that is when you would disobey. So that's some good thoughts from J.D. Greer there. All right. So this is a good place to transition to my second point of challenging you guys regarding your attitude. In Ephesians 6, Paul adds another little caveat. He says, obey, but then he adds something else in Ephesians 6 too, which I thought was really cheeky of Paul to just slide that right in there. He, he says, obey, but then he also turns around and says, honor as if they're two different things. And honoring has much more of a heart-like attitude consideration into it. Um, it digs down into the heart motive just a little bit more. And I am also displeased by the lack of honor that I see you give to your parents. I have heard many of you degrade your parents behind their backs, and frankly, many of, many of you speak with a glib lack of respect to your parents directly. Maybe you obey them in the final analysis, but all along the process, it has not been an honoring journey, okay? And so it's not just about that final, I obeyed, it's about the honoring all the way along. Um, when you open your mouth and I see the eyes that you have, I can see anger foaming right under the surface of what supposedly normal words are and the passive aggressive tone that is intended to go with them to communicate your anger. I mean, really, if, if tone could kill, some of you would be mass murderers. I mean, truly, like the, the tone and the, you know, that's what's fun about legalism, right? You didn't say anything wrong at all. But man, did you intentionally communicate your passive aggressive frustration all along the way, just twisting that knife as you went through. And so it's not just about the obedience, I, you know, whatever, if you... I mean, I do care about the final product, but it really I care about the fact that the attitude in the heart is so, so uh, really bitter all along the way. Um, you say you want a better relationship with your parents. You, you yearn for that. But I question the validity of that claim when you continually speak to them in ways that are designed to irritate and to show your disdain for them. Um, you turn on them like a switch. When, when things are going your way, you're getting what you want, you're super happy-go-lucky, great relationship, boom, they say, and I'm guilty of this too, say, no, you're not going to do that thing that you want. Wow, do the cat claws come out then? And it's, it's no, what credit is it to you, you know, to be friends with people who you are friends with, as Jesus says, but the, the credit to you is being friends with the tax collectors. And the same principle is true here. What credit to you is it obeying when it's what you always wanted to do anyways? How much more honor is there in God's eyes when you obey, when it's hard and it's not actually what you wanted to do all along? I, I thought about this as well. It's, it's different context, but it's the same thing over and over again. You bless God with your mouth, yet you curse others with your lips. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. So obey them from a heart with, full of a joyful motive. Love and cherish them from the heart. Um, you, may, you may be saying you have no idea how rude and obnoxious and hurtful my parents are. And you're absolutely right, okay? 
I, and by the way, I could give, I, I honestly would rather give an even more scathing sermon to some of your parents, if I could. If I had the opportunity, I think there is even more rebuke that is due there. Why? Because leaders in the home, I think leaders in general throughout scripture are held to a higher standard of accountability. And the verse that we're about to get to, to finish out tonight, the flip side for the parents, man, if they have more responsibility, they fail equally. Okay. And so, yes, I would, I think that you have endured much sin and that is, that is heartbreaking. But my job is not to understand why your situation is the exception. My job is to challenge you to obey like Christ did. And honestly, I think, I think Christ, that he doesn't obey like some of you did because I wouldn't have a savior if he did. Okay. I'm thankful that a lot of you don't, you and Christ don't obey in the same way because I wouldn't have a savior if Christ obeyed the same way you do. Does that make sense? Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father when it wasn't the most comfortable path. And, and yet he was, he was willing to do it with joy because it was what the Father's will was. And so suffer under injustice. You guys do suffer injustice in your homes. I'm not trying to minimize that. But through and through in scripture, the answer is not to buck injustice with rebellion. It is to husbands and wives, slaves and masters. And I would presume it is no different with child to parent. You suffer injustice with joy and in the same attitude that Christ did, and you win them with a good attitude. Love them and have joy in your heart for people who are hurtful to you just like Christ did. Um, I, I tell you what, if we got some modern psychology counselors around Christ, can you imagine like, if Matthew had recorded all the times that Jesus would have been told to set boundaries? I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, the crowd, the multitude, and he turned with them not with compassion, but with boundaries. And he said, you know what? I'll see you tomorrow. You know, I'm tired right now. I think I need to, I think I I need to go rest and recharge. What? I need some space. I need some space right now. Don't bring your sick and hurting to me. I need my me time. <laughs> like, I mean, it's ridiculous to think about Christ saying stuff like that, but that is exactly the kind of things that we apply to ourselves. So suffering under injustice with a great attitude is where real religion is found and it is what pleases God. Um, you may think that you are spiritual and have a ministry and a good ministry, but Paul instructs me, this is what's crazy. This is how strong of a language it is. Paul instructs me to turn away from fellowship with those that live in a lifestyle of disobedience to parents. You may be learning this and that and have all this knowledge, Paul says, but a flagrant life of disobedience gives grave markers regarding your spiritual condition. This is a very serious matter. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It's like witchcraft, adultery, hardcore sin, disobedient to parents, hardcore sin. And it's just like, just slid right there in the middle. And you're like, how'd that end up in there? But, but really, it, Paul obviously puts it in the same level of all these other sins, which is, which is honestly categorically hard for me to understand. It's a textual barrier. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which, oh, we don't like it there. Cut it out, you know? But it's there, and it's right in the same list. And then he says, you know, false teachers may be learning all of these things. They may, you know, people are going and learning this and that and the other, but they never really learn to know what the power of godliness is in their life, which, funneling that back up, the passage has to mean obedience to parents. 2 Timothy 3 1 through 7. Um, all right, so, but understand this. 
that in the last days there will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, uh, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoids, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning uh, and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Mm. Always learning, but never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. I just changed my, my lock screen, I wish I hadn't, but it's one of the God is no fools about a man who was always seeking God and he was always learning and you know he gets to heaven and this God is no fool and he says you know I never found God and the, the conclusion is God is just not that hard to find and right you know always learning always learning stuff always bouncing from cult to cult but you never learn what real godliness is knowledge of the truth means that you're not brutal you're not self-centered you're not a lover of money you're not disobedient to parents you're not blah 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 and, and so if you want real religion, if you want to really have a ministry and you want to be proud of your ministry, woohoo, that you're spiritual, then start with being obedient to the role that God has given you. One of the things you're going to find with slavery in the next week, and I, I, yeah, this is going to be a fun lesson overall, but, but what Paul says is um, be content in the place wherewith you were called, right? If you were called as a child, and you know you're called to salvation as a child, then be content and be good at being a child. If you're a wife, be good at being a wife. If you're a slave, be good at being a slave in his culture, okay? So it, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't be, ungod, don't, be, don't be like the ungodly who don't know Christ. Learn how to suffer with joy. This is a very odd statement, but don't waste bad parenting. You know, this John Piper, don't waste this, don't waste this, but don't waste bad parenting. You have... Receive trials, but let it be an instrument to produce greater grace and greater growth in your life. And now I'm, I may have sounded harsh for you know 20 minutes here, um, but I want to turn back towards a little bit of a soft tone once again and beg you to do something. Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Many of you have been sinned against for so many years, and I am genuinely sorry for that. I'm genuinely sorry that the people that are supposed to be God to you in the home continually and unabatedly failed at that. I, that's, I, I mean, it doesn't justify disobedience, but it sure does make it difficult, right? It sure makes it difficult to obey when you're constantly being poked and tormented in your home. It doesn't give you a safe place. And so I'm genuinely sorry for that. I, I don't want to minimize how difficult that that can be. And honestly, the fact that I can't relate to that in the same way that many of you can. Okay, I, I want to be very clear about that. Um, when he says about being discouraged, many children leave the faith. Why? Because the Christianity that my family showed up to Sunday church for, mm -hmm. we would stop yelling when? When we got out of the car to walk into church, right? And... 
kids get older, they go off to university, college, whatever, and they say, why would I, I mean, truly, right? I mean, if they have never learned the power of godliness that Paul just talked about, then that's exactly why kids become disheartened regarding the faith. They leave the faith because of this bad attitude by parents. And so um, I'm thankful <laughs> in some sense that the only thing that I'm seeing out of you guys is bad attitude sometimes and disobedience, right? Because it could be so much worse. And by and large, the Christians you'll meet at university, it's been a lot worse for them. It has, right? And so that's a horrible thing. And so um, I'm sorry because you probably have been discouraged and disheartened for many years and bittered in your childhood. And that is not okay. That's not okay at all. Um, but yeah, so I do want to just pause there and say um, that I, I beg you to turn and be better and be aware of how your actions may provoke your children. Um, I hear kids swear, and I promise this isn't a rabbit show. I actually wrote this. I hear kids swear all the time that they will never be like their parent in a given area. I'm never going to be like my parent. That's great and wonderful and all. Um, but you know the problem is that they usually take the principal error into a different application. Okay, I want you to think about that sentence. They take the principal error into a different application. For instance, real simple example. My parents forced me to do X. That angered me. I will never make them do X. But when the kids become a parent, then they force their kid to do Z because they think that Z is a good idea. Like their parents thought X was a good idea. So you, you think that X was the problem. X was never the problem. The problem was that you forced your kid to do something that didn't have a relationship with them. Okay, that's just a real general illustration. But what I, want, what, I, what I want you to see here is that, my friends, I need you to stop and consider your own actions very carefully in this area. Look at what your parents' real issues are or were, not just their superficial expression of those issues within the home. Ask yourself if those real issues are present within you as well. Because if they are, they will express themselves in different areas and in different ways, but they will have the same devastating results or even worse because you're blinded to them because you thought you fixed them. It can be really scary to see your parents in you, right? Like you've spent so, I don't know, 10 years of your life saying, I won't be this. And to introspect and be honest and say, I see this in myself, that can be horrible and terrifying. <laughs> Right? Like the worst qualities I see in my parents that I fought against forever, I see that in myself. That's a horribly self-humiliating conversation to have with yourself. But humble yourself now and work on them so that they don't impact your kids and you don't have these generational issues in the Somerset household or the, you know, the Blake household. You know, these generational sins that perpetuate just because, you know, I'm not going to be that, but then you're that just in a different way because that's the only thing you've ever seen and ever know. So you express your own preferences in the exact same vein. You have to change yourself according to the first part of Colossians chapter 3 in order for the second half of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 to ever have a chance of making it out of the dock. Right? If you're not a good person, what makes you think you're going to have a good home or good relationships with outsiders? So humble yourself now, recognize that just because you swear you'll never do it, you might do it in a different way in the exact same thing, okay? Now, I'm not a parent, so we're gonna go through, MacArthur did an absolutely phenomenal job of this, and so I'm taking his 10 things, 10 very practical items that parents can do to irritate their kids. I have so many thoughts on this, um, and I would encourage you to go listen to him. He's a parent, he has you know that very, I don't know, fatherly touch to it um, that I, 
can't have as not being a parent. But as I read these things, you know, I have my own thoughts on these things, and I completely agree with all of them. Um, the word fathers there, fathers are generally the leaders in the ancient home, but the same word is used over in Hebrews to refer to the parents of Moses. So it, it can refer to men and women both. Just don't get caught up on that, okay? So let's go through 10 things real briefly. We'll be out on time, I promise. Nah, I'm not going to promise. That's one of the things. Um, so uh, 10 things that you can do that can really irritate your child, and I would encourage you to go listen to MacArthur if you want a little bit more detail on these 10 things. Um, I'll just give a real quick word on each of them, and you're welcome to come to me for a little bit more detail. 10 ways to irritate your child. Number one, overprotection. Number one is overprotection. No trust, no liberty, just incessant questions and a literal Spanish Inquisition when you get home. You know, <laughs> like, where'd you go? Who'd you see? Why'd you go there after that? Who'd you go there? Why? What you doing? Where are you going tomorrow? You know, those sort of questions can irritate your child, Life right? <laughs> right, like, you know, <laughs> there, I, 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 I am going to stop from giving examples of people I've heard in this room because it is hilarious and depressing all, all in one, right? But overprotection irritates children. And, and what does it do? Really, in the final analysis, it gives a sense that I don't trust you, right? And um, some of the guys I've shared the more crass version of the story with, um, but I, you know, if I'm going to some social event, my dad basically says something in effect of, don't be stupid when I leave. And he didn't list out 100 things for me to do and to not do. And honestly, that really inspired way more trust in my relationship with him. Why? Because it gave me the impression that he thinks that I know what stupid is, <laughs> right? And how to avoid it. If he's, okay, don't do this, 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 do this, don't do this. That gives the impression that I have to spell out what stupid is because you're a part of it. Right? Like you're stupid and can't figure out how to differentiate yourself from the rest of it. Okay? But when he says, just, just don't do something stupid, please, please don't do something stupid, that gives me the impression he trusts me to make a good judgment about how to live a reasonable life. That inspires trust. Um, he didn't have to legislate my life because he raised me to know what stupid meant. Very good. Number two, favoritism. Especially with numerous kids, and there's so much to say here, I wish I could say more. If one kid continually feels like they can never live up to being like the others, it's a recipe for discouragement, right? Whether that's, you, know, you can have sports as one area, you can have academics, whatever area the parents choose to value because, um, well, because they value it. I mean, that's their life. Um, one, of these, one of these ones that... Um, MacArthur makes a really impressive note on, I'm just going to slide it in right here, is he's, he's like, let's be honest, when you're discouraging your child and depreciating their worth, some of the things that we're going to get into in a moment here, he says, you are, you are doing that because you and I both know you're holding them to a standard that you never were as a parent. He said, the reason you're being favoritist or you're depreciating their worth is because you never could be that. And now you want them to be that. And you have unreasonable expectations for what they were because you couldn't ever live up to your own expectations. Number three, depreciating their worth. Um, I would encourage you, 
Um, to and this is this is a controversial statement, but I, I think it's a really good one. I would encourage you to invite your children to express their views and opinions regarding family decisions. Um, while you have to retain control of your home, and just because somebody says something doesn't mean it happens. Um, learning to have views, to have beliefs, to have opinions, to have disagreements in a civil way, or even literally, I swear, literally even choosing where to go out to eat and having a preference about where to go out to eat um, is all a part of how you were raised. Because you, if you were never taught to have thoughts, to have opinions about what you want, then suddenly you just said, why even want something? Because that clearly doesn't matter. And then someday everyone's like, be a leader, know what you want in life. And you're like, ah, I, I've been to Chick-fil-A before. Let's go there. Right? You know, that you get into these weird, really funny situations. And it's comical when it's those things. It's not comical when you're going through premarital counseling and trying to have a vision for your life. It's no longer funny anymore when you don't know if you like Olive Garden or not, you know? So it's these sort of things that you, oh, there's so much to say, I, I gotta stop myself. But if you never learn to allow a child to express their views and opinions, then they will never have them and you'll wonder why they got mowed over in college because they never had a backbone, because they were never taught to have their own views and opinions. But you also have to maintain control of your home, whatever. Number four, discouragement. What your child does is never enough. They never perform well enough, not good enough grades, etc. That's going to result in disheartening. Um, make them strive for their very best, their excellent, absolute excellence, and celebrate them at whatever possible little occasion you can because they need to know that they are loved. Um, and honestly, you know this. You know this, whether it's from you to your parents or your parents to you. We say things to our kids that we would never say to anyone else in our life. Right? You never go into work and say some of the things that you say to your kids. But honestly, the people at work are probably more emotionally strong than your kids. Your kids are emotionally fragile, especially to you. So be conscious of the fact that just because you live with them doesn't mean that they're not little humans that need loved and you know, kind communication. Um, I mean, honestly, all it does when you communicate more harshly with them is reveal the fact that you would communicate harshly with every single person around you when they did something you disagreed with or made you irritated if you had no social consequences for it. You can't go and say these things at work because you'll get fired. But unless you do something real, real bad, you're never going to get fired from being a parent. So you can get away with saying almost anything that you want. And why is the reason that people don't disobey the government? as non-Christians, because there's consequences. That's the role of civil government. But Christians are supposed to be amazingly obedient to government on their own. They're supposed to be amazing employees. They're supposed to be amazing parents. Why? Because what's supposed to flow from them is genuinely encouraging and happy and joyous, you know, like all the time to a fault in some sense. And, and yet that's not what we find in our homes, which has to not reflect more on the children, but on the spiritual condition of the parents for not having good control of their tongues. Very well. Number five, don't demonstrate affection to your kids. Kids need to be held, hugged, kissed, picked up, loved, etc. And by the way, even if you aren't super physically affectionate yourself, they need you to be. They need you to be. Um, the physical side is very, very real and very important. Physical affection is a way to communicate love and acceptance. 
Um, this is a, this is a side train of thought, um, and if you want more explicit versions of what I'm saying here, I, I want you to consider something, especially for those of you that are going through premarital counseling, um, but it can be anyone as well. When thinking about physical insecurities, particularly as you move into marriage, but physical insecurities are any time in life, how was, um, how was, what messages were communicated to you regarding your physical body as you were growing up? Was touch encouraged? Was it a positive thing? Um, what, how, was, how was the view of one's body? Was it always like, cover that up, that's, that's weird. You know, like, was that the message, right? And so I think if you reflect upon your insecurities, you'll suddenly realize that there are more that stem from your childhood and the view of physical being within your home than you may have initially thought. And so as you go into your home and you design, okay, what do we think about you know, clothing around the home. What do we think about physical touch that we demonstrate within the home? Be very intentional about it because I think a lot of the anxieties and insecurities regarding physical being that many people display throughout uh, high school and into marriage are rooted in the views of physical being found within their home as they developed. Number six, providing for their needs. They need a place to play. They need clean clothes. They need good food. As they get older, they need somewhere to study. Um, they need something that can belong to them and is special to them. Um, let's say you get, and MacArthur brought this out beautifully. He said, I think so many kids struggle in school, not because they don't have the potential, but they get home and you know, they sit down at the, the table and start to do homework. And they say, what are you doing with that homework in here? You know, go to your room. Take your homework in your room. They go to their room. They don't have a desk in there. So they sit on, sit on their bed. And, you know, they have a backache within five minutes because you're trying to do, you know, that's, by the way, that is, as college students, why many of you have backaches as well is because you do your homework on your bed. But that's a, that's a different discussion. Um, it's called postural syndrome. It's a classification in PT treatments. Anyways, um, but literally, you, okay, you wonder why they didn't do well with school. Maybe it's because you have paper thin walls and you're, you're, this, you, oh man, this would start a fire. But you having the TV all the way up is not an act of selflessness for your child to study as a parent, right? Like turns out that either earbuds exist or you could sacrifice and love somebody. Right, like that's what love is. It's just an everyday one that gets looked over very commonly because you're being an obnoxious person in your home for creating an environment for your child to study. These are very stupid little things that demonstrate actual love for your child, providing for their needs. Number seven, lack of standards. When done properly, and I did include verses for this because it's all, you know, so much to say here. Um, having rules can show that you love them because you are caring about their best interests and what's, um, what's best for your children. Discipline's all over scripture um, as something children need because folly is bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs says. It's all in Proverbs, by the way. It's really interesting. Um, and it can actually communicate love when done well because it says, I care about you enough to be involved to discipline you. Number eight, criticism. Never being good enough. Create a positive, uplifting environment where they learn to be self-confident and believe that they are able to do anything that they put their mind to. Um, they need to be believed in. Um, one phrase that um, was in a movie and then my, my parents actually picked up from a movie is, uh, it sounds so dumb, but you know, repeating phrases like this until it's not dumb anymore but meaningful 
um, can be some of the most meaningful things as a kid. Um, you're as good as everyone else, only better. <laughs> right? Like, it, it's things like that, that like, if you really put your mind to it, you're like everyone else. But if you try, you can be better than everyone else. And having someone that, I, I, oh, I could ramble on this for hours personally, but having someone that believes in you when, you know, honestly, from an objective sense, you probably don't deserve that much belief in you. But they say that, it, I don't think it's dishonest, by the way, for this one reason, that you recognize as a parent that your very belief in someone can have a causal influence in the outcome, mm -hmm. right? It's not, being objective is not just looking at where the child is today, but saying, if I believe in them enough, I can will them to be successful, right? And so being objective, you know, and encouraging can be one of the same. Okay, just because, you know, they got to see on something, um, your belief in them to be positive and encouraging can turn that into an A um, just by your belief in them. Um, number nine, neglect. If you are indifferent, absent, um, and studies have shown this, um, if you are always on your phone as a parent, um, you, need, you need to be really present in your kids' lives. Um, kids are getting frustrated with their parents' technology addictions. Um, more than the reverse, actually. I've, I've read some about that. So be careful. Look for book time for them and make them feel important and special because they are. And watch, you know, you get annoyed with your kid being on their phone at the table. Maybe last time you checked, you checked your email because it was an important work thing, right? It's all important in relative senses. It's important to respond to your friends when you're 12. It's important to respond to your boss when you're 25. But you're also both neglecting each other when you're at the table. 10, over-discipline. Um, if they do something wrong, let the discipline be appropriate to the amount um, to build them up and not be done in anger. If it's simply a mistake, don't cry over spilled milk. Um, your child needs to be comfortable coming to you as a friend because one day, and you're in this boat right now, you're going to get to choose to be friends with them or to not be friends with them. And as a parent, you're stuck with them for those first you know, 16, 18 years, but someday they'll get to choose if they want to be friends with you or not, and friends come to each other with things voluntarily, um, and they need to be comfortable coming to you. Um, so like my parents have always had a policy of, if you get caught up in a bad situation, always feel free to call us, and we will come pick you up, no matter what you've done, and we won't ask any questions, at least at that point in time. Just try to tell us what's relevant information, like I murdered somebody, we need to hide you. Like, like if it's relevant, yes, please share it. But we're not going to ask any questions. We're not going to pound you. We'll just, if you say, hey, I'm in a bad situation, I need help. I don't need any questions right now. That's a really good policy. Why? Because it doesn't encourage fear in asking for help and coming with things. I remember, um, I've, I actually haven't shared this. Um, I remember there was a time in life when I, uh, I got into a real uh, cussing phase privately in life. And I used every curse word in the book, right? Because I was like, you know, 10 and, you know, thought that was a good idea for something. And, but I felt majorly convicted over my private sin. And so I eventually confessed to my parents about this, which I'm sure you've done if you're a child with a conscience. And so uh, I was, you know, I was like, okay, you know, there's going to be punishment with this. And... And I talked to my parents, and my dad said, I'm not saying this is the right choice, but he said, you know, we're going to sweep this under the rug. Why? Because I went and told them, and they didn't want to reinforce, you know, oh, you come and tell us something, man, we're going to 
slap you for that, you know? So I, I think there's real merit in being wise in the way of saying discipline is for a purpose. It's designed to have a sorrow to repentance and to change. And if your child is demonstrating that, they don't ever discipline them in anger. Recognize where they're at and be sensitive to that, okay? If it's a mistake, it's a mistake. And it's a mistake. And truthfully, their mistakes are just irritating you probably. That's why you want to discipline them. But you have to check yourself and say, I'm just getting irritated because it was just a glass of spilled milk, but now I have to clean it up because we know they're not going to clean it up. But I have to clean it up, and so I'm probably going to discipline them because I'm mad now. And that's not a really good motive to discipline anyone because it was a mistake, okay? So plenty more things to say, and if I may add my own little things here at the end, be consistent. Be predictable in producing a stable environment. Don't make promises you can't keep, like letting you out on time. That's why I checked it. Um, make an intentional <clears throat> habit out of telling your kids you love them every day. Like literally say, have I told you I love you today? Um, and if my mom ever listens to this, I, I say the most important thing that she has ever taught me and ever shared with me is how to use color note on my phone. So if she listens to this, she'll be waiting for that. Color note is the most important thing I've ever learned from my mom. Just kidding, of course. Um, <laughs> but um, many more things to be said here, but in summary, children, if you still put your feet under your parents' table and sleep under their roof, obey them. And for the rest of your life, honor and respect them. When you have parent, uh, sorry, when you become parents, you probably have parents right now. Um, view your children as a ministry to sacrifice yourself for and to love, not to irritate and to be a discouragement to. Um, if you have any questions about particulars or practical ideas and thoughts, I have them, but I've tried to narrow it down here. So please come talk to me. I'd be happy to share some thoughts. But um, I, I, I really am so glad to be back teaching at what I consider my home church. There's nothing like teaching from home base, you know, it's just a different feel to be around people that I actually know and feel like I can challenge specifically. Because um, that's my job, is to take the word and to apply it. So I hope that you're not too fuming over it. I understand there's balances, there's toxic relationships, there's abuse, there's all sorts of things to have whole hour discussions on individually. But hopefully I've given you the Paul's view of the default role and setting for the family, okay? Um, would anyone be willing to pray after Robbie has his comment? Yes. I think that this is kind of just like a, a quote type of thing where it's like, you know, if we, if we all got what we deserved or yeah. thought we deserved, you know, we might as well just go to hell. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Anyone willing to pray? Um, perhaps even a sort of a, a um, congregational, corporate, repentant type prayer if anyone would be interested in that. Dear Heavenly Father, um, as Sam has pointed out, um, we talk and talk about how we should submit to you, about how we should, wives should submit to husbands, how husbands should be loving leaders, um, and yet many of us, including myself, um, are quite vulgar with our parents, are quite um, disrespectful, um, have no, not only um, disrespect them, but have no even, not even the slightest um, inkling of honor um, towards them. So God, I pray, um, I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, for um, our sins. Um, I know this is not just a me problem, mm -hmm. and, um, and I know some of us are doing better than others, but God, um, we have blatantly sinned against you, 
and against our parents for many years. So God, I pray you would um, be gracious to us um, in your discipline of our sin. I pray that you would be quick to change our perspectives, yeah. quick to change our um, our not just our actions, but also our love towards them. Um, it's it's difficult to um, lovingly look at someone who's harmed you or who's harmed other people, um, and love them and out of love say. No, I won't do this thing, but I will, you know, do these ridiculous things that aren't causing me or you to sin. Um, so God, I pray you would help us to do ridiculous things that are illogical, that don't make sense to us, um, even if we do know better. Um, in some instances, Lord, um, it, it's not our place to um, dishonor them, and it is our place to obey them and to obey them in everything. And yes, in the Lord, but um, as Sam has shown, we oftentimes um, try to stretch that a lot. So God, I just pray that you would forgive us all for our many, many sins in this area. And I pray that you would um, help us for those of us in harder circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> some of us just have illogical parents and some of us have abusive parents, um, whether that be physically, emotionally, or um, however. God, I pray you would um, help those of us in harder situations to be able to love the person that's hating us, to love the person that's um, at times calling us to sin, at times um, mm -hmm. not, not even um, believing in the true gospel. So God, I pray that you would um, also help us to look to Christ as our example, who um, was perfect and did know better in every circumstance, and yet loved and respected his mother and his father. Um, and even uh, suffering on a cross in the worst of circumstances, um, taking on the sin of the world, um, still looked after his mother and provided for her by um, calling John to be her new son. So God, I pray you would um, help us to out of love um, for our parents, to obey them, um, help us to um, not be so angry. Um, God, I... In Ukraine, it seems as though that anger was not even in sight for a lot of them, and that they were just so joyous that Christ had saved them, that um, that they were Christians, that they just loved each other, and that they um, seemingly honored their parents. And I realize we don't see all those circumstances, but God, I pray that you would um, convict us of that sin, and just be truly sorrowful. And I pray all these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.